For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with Mike Madison, my co-host and producer. I love doing current event shows because it helps people process uh, what they're seeing on the news and reading about, maybe on Facebook right now. And that's what today's show is. So we're going to address a book called Tell Your Children, The Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. Uh, Alex Berenson wrote this book. He's a journalist and novelist. The book was released in January, and um, Berenson wrote several articles uh, since then, around the time of that publishing and since then, that were published in um, publications like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Um, one of the titles was Marijuana is More Dangerous Than You Think. Um, he's kind of, uh, that that's his angle on it. So joining us today to sort through his arguments and some of the responses to them is Dr. Sheila Vicaria from the Drug Policy Alliance. DPA, which is Drug Policy Alliance, has been working for several decades in advocacy towards healthier and more just drug policies. Dr. Vicari is a researcher in the Office of Academic Engagement for the Drug Policy Alliance, and prior to joining DPA, she was an assistant professor of social work at Long Island University, and had also worked as a clinical social worker in both uh, abstinence-only and harm reduction settings. She's joining us today to walk us through a paper that DPA put out in response to Berenson's book, walking through some of his art, uh, arguments and giving critiques of them. That paper is called What Not to Tell Your Children, <laughs> Five Things Alex Berenson Gets Wrong About Marijuana. Sheila, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so great to be here. So you've done a lot of work over the years in many different aspects of drug policy reform and harm reduction efforts. What are you seeing today that makes you most hopeful? Well, there's actually, I think, a lot to be hopeful about these days. Um, I think when we talk about marijuana reform, um, we're increasingly seeing that Americans are getting on board and supporting legalization. A recent Pew survey in October suggests that over 60 percent of Americans support legalization. And when you stop for a second and think about how far we've come, uh, we're at the point where 10 states and the District of Columbia have legalized. And if you think about the states that have legalized adult use versus medical use, you can actually say that a majority of Americans live in a state with some form of legal access to the substance. And increasingly on the federal level, we're hearing about legislation being promoted to expand access to marijuana for research, to address issues with federal prohibition, and also to support more banking access and reform uh, in states where we've legalized. And I think also, I'm really excited and hopeful about the support for criminal justice reform that my organization has been really advocating for for decades, as you say, uh, increasing conversations across the country about reforming bail and sentencing reform, having conversations about law enforcement assisted diversion and understanding that drug use is a public health issue rather than a criminal justice issue. The fact that I'm seeing more people talking about it that way is a really positive sign for me. And, uh, you know, in light of the overdose crisis, we're actually hearing more Americans talking about the need to expand access to Narcan or Naloxone, the overdose reversal medication, and trainings happening across the country. More and more Americans are making sure that they have it at home to keep themselves and their loved ones safe. 
and uh, you know, even conversations about safer consumption spaces in cities across the country. I would never have imagined that I could see something like this happening today. And so there's, there's a lot to be hopeful about. It's cool for me to see all of these things. I feel like I'm riding the wave that other people have uh, been working for decades on. And I never uh-huh. I got on the train late, but the train is rolling now. Um, and it's just really neat to see the change in uh, perspective, even for conservative people like myself to begin to think through, you know, there's bigger issues here than uh, or there's more at stake than just, you know, do we want people using drugs? There's all of these public health issues and family issues and uh, all these other things that are touched by it, education and voting rights and all of these other things that we can say, okay, you know, I, we don't want people using drugs, but there are so many other things that are part of this conversation, and we we can move because we want some of those other things uh, to change and to be reformed, and we can I find ab- common ground. Yeah. I absolutely agree. I think that it's common sense. I think drug policy reform and criminal justice reform increasingly is becoming a common sense way of looking at the problems that we're facing today, and it's not about which side of the aisle you're on. It's not about... Um, your ideology. I think it's common sense. I think it's practical. And I think people are looking for practical, realistic solutions. So let's dive into uh, Tell Your Children. I'm going to pull out several of Berenson's arguments for us to talk through today. So the first one is his claim that marijuana has caused an increase in schizophrenia and related psychotic disorders, and that if we continue to legalize it in more states, that these rates are just going to continue to increase as legalization increases. What's your response to that? Well, as a clinically trained social worker, I can tell you that schizophrenia and psychotic disorders are complex, multifaceted disorders, and that the research actually suggests that there's no single cause of any of these disorders. And it's more likely that when people develop these symptoms and these disorders, that it's an interaction between their genetics, you know, having a family member or a first degree relative with these disorders, and then a variety of environmental factors that can play out. And what the research suggests is that there, while there might be an association it's often a stronger association for people who already have a genetic risk for these mental disorders to use cannabis and to use marijuana. And so that some of these individuals are more likely to use heavily and perhaps more frequently than others. And that could probably exacerbate their own risk for these issues. Because what we need to remember is that even in all studies on psychosis and marijuana use, that the vast majority of people who use marijuana do not experience any psychosis or develop um, any sort of schizophrenic disorder. So we have to remember that um, that human behaviors and human experiences and, and phenomena are complex, that there is no single thing that's going to drive someone into a disordered state. And so to oversimplify just one causal factor, marijuana use, really um, minimizes the fact that uh, there's still so much that we don't know, and it draws a connection that even the research isn't quite ready to say uh, is true. That's a good point. Help us uh, understand the difference between causation and association. Right. So causation is when we know that for the vast majority of people, doing X leads to Y, right? So we know that for the vast majority of people who uh, consume high-calorie substances, high-calorie high, high foods, high-fat um, high foods, that weight gain is kind of a known um, kind of effect of that, right? So we know that eating high-calorie foods, we know that uh, consuming high-fat foods can lead to weight gain, right? And we know that there is a causal relationship there. And, you know, you can see graphs and research that kind of show that 
as calories consumed and fat consumed increases, you know, people's body weight also increases. That's pretty clear, right? And meanwhile, an association is um, showing that there is probably a relationship between the two things. So, you know, when we also have to talk about um, weight gain, for instance, um, how much calorie, how many calories you eat and how much fat you eat um, obviously has a, a very strong relationship with your weight. But, you know, we also have to remember that perhaps exercise can affect your weight gain as well, right? So we know that increased levels of exercise are um, associated in weight loss for some people, right? Because if you do cardiovascular exercise, for instance, you lose weight. But we also know that if you do bodybuilding and you do um, more muscle tone um, exercises, that actually you gain muscle and muscle makes you gain weight. So um, I don't know if that analogy is helpful, but... So instead of, you know, clearly saying that one thing causes another, an association says, you know, there might be a relationship there, but the relationship may be different than you think. And that even that relationship is probably impacted by a variety of other factors. And with marijuana and uh, schizophrenia, could it be that um, that people with schizophrenia are more likely to use marijuana as opposed to the that it is causal in that, you know, the marijuana caused their schizophrenia. Um, I heard that from a, a nurse here who worked with patients with schizophrenia. And he said, you know, one of my patients said, I am totally functional if I can smoke a joint of marijuana every day. The, mm-hmm. it, 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 for him, his, his experience was that that's what allowed him to function even with uh, schizophrenia. Um, so whereas somebody might say, well, his marijuana use caused his schizophrenia, he would say, no, I'm, I'm, I have schizophrenia. I also use marijuana. Is that kind of the difference? And we have to be careful not to say if they have schizophrenia and they smoke marijuana, marijuana must have caused it. Yeah, like what you're describing is something that we think about a lot. It's called self-medication. So the self-medication theory of why some people use drugs is that um, the psychoactive properties or the way that a drug makes them feel actually helps them to feel like they're addressing some other underlying issues that they might have. So we know that people who have um, who, who have a, a diagnosis of schizophrenia, but also for different disorders such as depression and anxiety and sometimes PTSD, they have higher rates of using various substances because they feel like some of those drugs help offset some of the symptoms of the disorders that they might have. And so they are, rather than going out and seeking um, a doctor for psychiatric medications or pills, uh, they may be using street drugs to help self-medicate medicate and make their um, symptoms uh, maybe decrease in intensity or help mitigate some of their symptoms. So absolutely, we do know that there are high rates of people who self-medicate with marijuana and a variety of other drugs. And what we do hear from a lot of people with schizophrenia um, is that Oftentimes, the CBD that's in marijuana, CBD is one of the psychoactive um, uh, kind of compounds in marijuana, is that it actually, for some people, helps reduce anxiety and reduce um, some of some of those um, uncomfortable feelings that they may experience. And, you know, uh, on a side note, we, we are hearing a lot more about people talking about CBD as an extract taken out of the marijuana plant entirely as being helpful with some people's uh, treatment of a variety of conditions. So, yeah, there's there's a lot to be said there for self-medication. And it, whether or not people agree that they should be self-medicating, the research just is not ready to say that marijuana causes schizophrenia. Uh, and it doesn't, obviously, for lots and lots of people because there's loads of people 
uh, in the United States. More than half of the population in Mississippi has smoked marijuana. Um, and mm-hmm. we don't have half the population in Mississippi that has schizophrenia. Um, so we have to be careful about that. Yeah, we have to be relief. careful. We have to understand that some people who have pre-existing familial genetic history of having psychotic disorders, they may already be at risk of developing those disorders. And for some of those folks, maybe smoking marijuana and drinking alcohol and using various stimulants is probably not the best idea because it can complicate their genetic risk and then increase the likelihood that they actually manifest those disorders. Mm -hmm. And we know that to be true. You know, um, folks who have family histories of various mental health disorders, sometimes for some people, their self-medication or attempt to self-medicate can actually make their symptoms worse. Um, And so, you know, we have to be mindful of that. So another one of his points in the book um, is that uh, it causes violence in some people who use it. How would you respond to that? It's kind of the second point of his, the the title of his Mm -hmm. book, you know, The Truth About Mental Illness and Violence. Uh, How do you respond to the claim of violence? Yeah, I mean, he, he does a few things when he talks about violence. First of all, he says that in his presumption that increased marijuana use leads to increases in schizophrenia and psychotic disorders, that it's those people who develop schizophrenia and psychotic disorders who then are more violent and more likely to be violent. And then he says a second thing, that even in people who don't have those mental health disorders, that even just using marijuana may make them more violent. So on his first claim that people with schizophrenia and psychotic disorders will be more violent because they use marijuana, we have to really push back. The National Institute of Mental Health, NIMH, actually uh, really challenges these stigmatizing attitudes that people with mental disorders are somehow more violent than the general population because research actually suggests that people with mental illness are actually far more likely to be victims of violence themselves. So that's actually the first point that I'd like to refute. On the second point about that anyone who uses marijuana is more violent, we have to challenge that idea because actually you have to stop for a second and think about what does marijuana actually make people feel like when they use it? And the vast majority of people who talk about what marijuana feels like when they use it is that they say that they feel relaxed, they feel happy or euphoric, they feel more connected to others. And they feel, and and for some people, they feel like it reduces their anxiety and it makes them, um, some people talk about how actually marijuana helps them sleep. None of those effects that people describe are effects that one would associate with a violent person or violent behavior. So we also have to stop for a second and think to ourselves, this is not a substance with known psychoactive effects that actually makes people feel um, more jittery, more provoked, more... um, uh, more, you know, more prone to have these dis- these misunderstandings or to, to feel like, um, to feel triggered by these things. Because actually, when you talk to people who smoke marijuana, they don't report feeling those things and they don't use marijuana to feel that way. So you have to kind of challenge that association. And then when you look at studies that actually look at rates of violent crime, rates of homicide and murder on a national scale, you actually don't really see those increases on a widespread um, basis. And so, There's plenty of evidence to support the idea that there is no clear association. And you have to remember that even in the introduction of Berenson's book, he talks about how some of these thoughts that led to him writing this book were based on conversations he had with his wife, who is a forensic psychiatrist. She actually works with people who are are considered um, criminally insane or people who are deemed uh, to be suffering from severe mental health problems and who have perpetrated crimes. 
So even his inspiration for writing this book and this idea that marijuana isn't as safe as you think is based on the idea that he, he got from talking to his wife, who works with a very selective, small pool of very troubled individuals who, who have obviously a lot more problems other than just their marijuana use that led to their behavior. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. And one of the things that the Office of National Drug Control, Control Policy uh, report found, I'm quoting from this, is marijuana use does not induce violent crime, and the links between marijuana use and property crime are thin. So that's coming from, you know, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the organization mm-hmm. on National Drug Control Policy. Um, and is there a comparison to make? I just thought about this as I was sitting here. I mean, we you can read in the newspapers, we've had it here in Mississippi, all the time of people committing violent crimes while they're drunk which is far yeah. more common than committing violent crimes, um, you know, while they're smoking marijuana. Um, but but nobody is using that as even uh, even the times that it does. We don't we don't have this kind of blanket way of thinking about that as though alcohol makes you violent. We understand that the vast majority of people who use alcohol are not violent on it for some people. You know, they there may be a host of other things going on there. Um we can't say the substance caused it or um, so is that a comparison kind of for what uh, is, is true of marijuana too, or is that kind of a separate thing? I think there's something to be said about that because what we know is that for alcohol specifically as well, is that um, it does um, limit your ability to control your impulses. And for some people um, that, that um, effect on their impulse control can make them act on violent impulses that they wouldn't have otherwise. And so there absolutely is something to be said for us having to really understand the pharmacological effects that these different drugs can have on people's judgment and ability to interpret situations and then make, um, you know, safe and responsible choices. And there is, there, there is mountains and mountains of evidence that, you know, when you look at cases of domestic violence, when you look at cases of um, battery and assault, that, you know, when we're talking about the involvement of alcohol in those kinds of situations, um, it doesn't help uh, people when they're experiencing conflict that their um, impulse control is affected. It doesn't help them that they might be more likely to say things that they wouldn't otherwise say. It doesn't help that we actually know that some of the things that alcohol does to people and their behavior and their cognition can really be associated with turning a troubling or complicated or situation maybe a little bit worse or a little making it a little bit more dangerous for folks. Yeah. So Berenson says that at, at one point he says he doesn't think people should be put um, in jail just for possessing marijuana. Uh, but he also says, quote, even in states that haven't decriminalized, almost no one is imprisoned for possession anymore, uh, end quote. Now, if I just look at Mississippi marijuana arrests um, for a couple of years ago, which is the, the time that I have data for because it's so usually a couple of years behind, we had 4,000 people in one year um, in Mississippi just for possession of marijuana, which is hardly almost no one. <laughs> is there a mm-hmm. disconnect from what's actually happening to maybe what he thinks is happening or maybe even what people anecdotally say? They might say, ah, oh, we don't arrest anybody for marijuana anymore. Whereas if, you know, just the numbers in Mississippi in one year, we arrested 4,000 people just for possessing marijuana. Yeah, I mean, I think first we have to separate between um, arrests and people behind bars, right? So 
first of all, when we talk about marijuana arrests, so you're saying that Mississippi arrested 4,000 people. Mm-hmm. If we look more nationally, um, you know, in 2017, there were almost 600,000 people arrested for marijuana possession alone across the entire country. And that means that in 2017, more people were arrested for marijuana possession than all other violent crimes combined. And we know that when we talk about any sort of marijuana-related arrest, nine of those arrests are for people just possessing it for their own use. And only one are actually for people who are selling the substance. So we know that even of the people picked up for marijuana, most of those people that are getting picked up are for their own use. And this actually amounts to people being arrested one person being arrested in the country for marijuana possession almost every minute of the year. And although it's hard to now shift to talk about incarceration data, we don't really have clean numbers when it comes to who's in a local jail at any given time and what charges that they are there for. But we estimate as an organization that there's, there must be tens of thousands of people arrested for something related to marijuana in local and state and federal prisons across the country. Because there are still ways that an arrest can turn into incarceration. So for some people, an arrest simply means that they uh, can still go home and then come back and meet with a judge. Although, if you are someone who's arrested for marijuana and you're already on probation or parole, you can then be violated and then you do have to actually go back to jail or to go to prison. Or if your marijuana charge is put on top of some other charges that you've already had, you might actually have to plead guilty and then that could actually lead to you being put behind bars. Also, if your marijuana arrest is maybe the third strike in a state where you have three strikes laws, so maybe mm-hmm. if it was by itself and you had no criminal background, um, it would have it would have been treated differently. But say it's the third thing that you were arrested for, you could actually end up spending time behind behind bars, and um, and and so there are still ways that an arrest can can still let, uh, lead some people to spend time behind bars. And the other thing for us to remember is that. Even having an arrest on your background, um, in your criminal background, with no conviction, can still show up in a background check and can still show up in ways that could really affect your life and your future and your opportunities. So I'm still thinking about what you just said a minute ago, that we are in 2017, we arrested in the U.S. more people for marijuana possession than we arrested for all violent crimes combined. Mm Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. wow, that is such a massive amount of resources. We we d- did an interview recently with a former law enforcement officer that was talking about the poor arrest rates for violent crime, how few crimes are actually solved of violent mm-hmm. crimes where there's, and so we think about the amount of money that we're putting into arresting people for something like marijuana possession, and ha- those resources are not being used for justice for victims of violent crime. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We have to stop for a second and think, you know, what are our real priorities? And let's think really about what public safety should look like and what kind of world we'd really like to live in. And uh, to think about what that means for our priorities for our law enforcement. Absolutely. So let's switch over to what I often think of as kind of the forgotten side of the debate. When we talk about legalization, uh, especially in my circles, in conservative circles, it can be this way. And that's the harms associated with prohibition. So opponents of legalization don't often talk about um, all the harms that we're currently living with from prohibition. So instead, we can kind of get this um, 
idea that prohibition is a neutral position, like this is kind of just the way it is. And Mm -hmm. only, you know, the only thing that we're talking about is potential harms from legalizing as opposed to all of these harms we're living under that most of us don't even remember when we didn't live under. So we don't even recognize them really anymore. Tell us what some of those are. What are some of the harms of criminalizing marijuana that we currently are living under with prohibition? Absolutely. I think we just started getting into this a little bit, but I'd like to push on this a little bit further is that it diverts precious law enforcement time, energy, and resources away from more serious crime, right? So as we just said, you know, police arrested almost 600,000 people for simple possession. Imagine the number of man hours and resources that went into finding those individuals, arresting them, booking them, charging them for some of them, the amount of cost it uh, we incurred as taxpayers to um, the, the time that they, that they might have spent behind bars and et cetera. I mean, wouldn't you rather that your law enforcement was focusing on clearing rape and robbery cases instead? Uh, wouldn't you rather that your tax money were, uh, was actually going to repairing, um, you know, that pothole or, um, you know, opening a community center or, you know, making sure that your library was open more hours? Um, you know, we have a say about where our tax money goes and where what our priorities are. And I think increasingly prohibition limits those choices because so much money has to go into the criminal justice apparatus and towards keeping people behind bars, which is expensive to us and doesn't really make us any safer. And it even puts law enforcement time, energy and resources into things that, again, aren't going to make us safer, but that also don't make them feel very good about their jobs. You talk to law enforcement who are out there on the streets, um, who who are out there Um, trying to chase down these charges. And they themselves say, you know, I don't always feel like I'm doing much good because I go and get, uh, you know, take down, you know, one user one day, but, um, you know, someone else is out there in their place. I go down and I take out one dealer, but then there's another one out there in their place. And I see the same people again and again, cycling through the system. You talk to law enforcement, frankly, and they want to feel like they're making a change too. How are we actually helping them feel effective? And I think that that's the framing that we don't often use enough. Um, And I think, you know, to shift away from that to another reason that I think prohibition is harmful to us is that for those of us who have gotten caught up, um, whether it was arrested um, and 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 those of us who got arrested and actually had to spend time behind bars is that an arrest can really haunt you for life and it can really strip you of potential future educational and um, and economic opportunities to advance you, your family, and your community. Um, You know that an arrest can even show up on background checks for a future landlord or employer who might say, you know what, everything about you seems really great, but ooh, you, you had an arrest charge before. Oh, you've you, you know, you've been convicted of something like this before. And even though that might have been something that happened a long time ago, people find that they're still haunted by those things. And so um, how is that actually helping people advance themselves or advance their lives? If we really think that drug use is a public health issue, and for some people who might be addicted to drugs, that um, being arrested was a consequence of their addiction, but now we want them to seek out a recovery in which they get their lives on track, how does one get their life on track after years of an addiction that may have, you know, led to so many charges into a long, um, you know, a long rap sheet that now is getting in the way of them trying to get their life in the direction they'd like to see it in. Um, I think also we have to really think about personal liberty, privacy, and autonomy. 
Um, the drug war decides for you what you are allowed to use and not use. It decides for you what you, what you are allowed to consume and not allowed to consume. And if you are consuming a substance and it's not harming anyone else, why does the government get to decide that people who consume alcohol at a bar and alcohol, as we said earlier, has actually been associated with more public health harms and public safety harms than, uh, than marijuana. Why does it, the law decide that that person's consumption is somehow um, more sanctioned or more legal than, than uh, the consumption of a plant that you consume in your own house? So we have to really think also about what, what we're doing when we give the law the opportunity to decide what you cannot and can put into your body. And lastly, I guess the last point that I'd like to say is that the criminalization of these drugs, including marijuana, just incentivizes an underground illicit market for these substances. So, you know, having an illicit market in which, you know, you know, dealers and traffickers and, um, and suppliers have to protect their turf, have to protect their territory, have to make sure that no one else is impinging on it. That's what we know is, is, is putting our communities at risk because oftentimes, um, you know, the illicit market isn't being controlled or regulated by the systems that we use to, to regulate other industries. And so we have to, to think about that. Does the illicit market make us safer? And does it make our kids safer more specifically? You know, kids, um, you know, drug dealers don't ask for ID. Right. And when you start regulating substances, you put them in a store, you put them behind it, uh, you know, you put them behind all these laws that say only these folks are allowed in the store, only these, these folks are allowed to purchase, that actually keeps our kids safer too, and it restricts their access. And what we're seeing increasingly from the research in states that have medicalized, but also legalized for adult use, is that rates of kids' consumption has not gone up. And in some cases, it's stabilized and it's on the decrease. Again, because we're cutting off those illicit supplies that, that we're making their way to our children. And ironically, for Berenson's book, where he talks, he's talking about the potential negative health outcomes and community outcomes of marijuana legalization. But we know that incarceration is associated with poor health and mental health outcomes for people who are incarcerated. So we're, we're already cycling thousands of people through the criminal justice system every year when we know that a criminal justice interaction uh, and time in prison is, is associated with poor um, outcomes and broken community connections, things that can help people to have meaningful lives where um, they're not in, engaging in other activities that we don't want them uh, participating in. So it's not like our response to marijuana under prohibition is healthy. It has all of its own set of health harms and community harms that are related to that, too. Is there anything else you'd like to share? No, no, I think I, I think we, we covered a lot. And I would encourage folks, if they're interested in these issues and learning about what my organization is doing on a national scale to look us up. So we're the Drug Policy Alliance, and you can go to our website at drugpolicy.org and learn from our resource pages about the kinds of um, information that we're trying to put out there that's fact-based and reality-based, pushing them back against um, the mythologies that people hold about drugs and, and what they do in the body. Learn about some of the legislative initiatives that we're pushing forth at the state level and at the federal level. Um, we've also developed this really fantastic curriculum called Safety First as an alternative to DARE and other fear-based education programs for youth and young people to make healthy choices about their lives and their choice whether or not to use substances. And um, to consider donating to us. We are a nonprofit organization doing this work, and it's not easy. And um, we always welcome the support 
of like-minded people who, who understand that the war on drugs um, is a problem. It's wrong and it needs to end, but it's not going to end on its own. We, we need to double down on our efforts. So um, that's, that's what I'd like to put out there. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Vicaria. Uh, and we'll put her contact info um, in the show notes of today's episode at enditforgood.com slash podcast. Um, drug Policy Alliance has been a fantastic resource for drug policy literature and research. I've used all kinds of their stuff. They have a great series of videos on different drugs, like what do they actually do. It, it's amazing how when you lay down fear, you really can just learn the actual the facts about what are these drugs, what do they do, which ones are stimulants, which ones are depressants, how do they interact with the body, why? How do people use them? Um, they have such great resources. Um, they also host a conference every two years for advocates of reforming our drug laws, and that's going to be in November in St. Louis called the Reform Conference. I'm actually going to that. Dr. Vicaria will be there as well. Uh, so come join us, and uh, we're going to focus our efforts on policies that save lives and reduce harm. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.